even to this day, he's probably the smartest person I've ever met in my life. As you've probably, you know, heard and learned to his ability to speak or even argue uh, scenarios. I remember being third, fourth grade and just watching him get into an argument with his mom or his dad or an adult or someone and just win the argument because he was so good at it. So He was just always so even keeled, always had his wits about him. He used to take my camera and take pictures, <laughs> and take pictures of himself, sitting in a chair smiling. And, you know, I'd be looking through my pictures on my camera and here would be a bunch of Josh I'd take it of himself. One of the, the fondest memories I have growing up with him was um, his dad, mom and dad had a boat and they'd always go out on the boat. So anytime we got to go out, uh, I basically learned how to, how to water ski uh, going out on the boat with him and his mom and dad and learned. I remember the first time I even went out, I was scared, even with a life jacket on, but over time, you know, kind of, it's kind of where I learned to swim and just kind of be on the lake as a whole. Another time, all, we had all the kids and we're in this little apartment and we're having like one of those mini squirt gun fights. And I pretended like my squirt gun was empty and I ran into the bathroom and turned the water on. And Josh comes running around the corner and I squirt him right between the eyes and he turns around and he runs right into the corner of where two walls met. And he turns around and it looks like he's gonna cry and I can see a red line down the center of his face where he hit the wall and I go, Oh, Josh, if you broke that wall, your mom's going to be so mad at us. And he started laughing. He was, you know, always happy. But he was uh, a mama's boy. So, you know, I was always, so if he got hurt or something like that, you know, he was a mama's boy. But uh, he liked to do things with his dad. He liked to hunt liked to fish, he liked to learn, and like the people that he worked with at Target, there was an older lady there that he would help her out or give her a ride home, you know, and there was people from church that he would go over and he'd mow their lawn or he'd help them out, you know. <coughs> Nobody's forcing him to do this, you know, he wants to do it. He was, I think he was a nice, helpful, uh, personable young man. I think he really felt that he could make a difference. You've had a long time to think about what may have happened. In your heart of hearts, what do you think? I know, that, I know that Josh did not disappear of his own free will. Something happened. I'm not sure if he was just in the wrong place, you know, at the, at the wrong time, and uh, someone snatched him, or he willingly left with somebody that had bad intentions, and he did, did not realize it. But it was someone he... New or something. I think somebody grabbed him either on campus or off campus. 
somebody took him somewhere. I'm just looking here, like those guys, had I, had I gotten too close to them or had I let them get too close to me, I would have been on that freeway in their car within 10 seconds. How close did they get to you prior to you running? Um, I'd say three, three and a half, four feet. I mean, it was, as you and I are standing here today, probably about this close, if not just a little closer. I and mean, as they got close, I started backing up and they kept coming forward. And so I kept backing up. Um, it happened pretty quickly. I'm, I'm certain that they wanted to grab me. I mean, there isn't any plausible explanation for this, for this experience or interaction other than that. This is the Simply Vanished podcast, produced by Trembling Leaf Media in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Josh Newville. Welcome back to the podcast. Before the introduction, you heard from Bart, one of Josh's childhood best friends, Josh's mom, Lisa, her longtime partner, Ricky, and then Jeremy, a brand new and very important witness who just came forward this past week. You'll hear more from all of them, especially Jeremy, in just a bit. On August 1st, 2002, just three months before Josh Gimon's disappearance, and only 45 miles away, in the sleepy town of New London, Minnesota, 18-year-old Danny Newville disappeared in the middle of the night. 54 days later, officers received an anonymous tip that he had been murdered. On October 31st, 2002, just 10 days before Josh's disappearance and one hour and 15 minutes away, 21-year-old Chris Jenkins vanished after leaving a bar in Minneapolis. His body was later found as though it had been staged, with his own hair clenched in his hand. Both men are believed to be victims of homicide, and as of today, neither of their cases has been solved. We'll discuss both in future episodes, but a brief note for listeners in Minnesota. This coming Saturday, July 30th, 2022, is the ninth annual Memorial and Awareness Walk for Danny Newville. It will start at 10 a.m. in New London, and although I am not related to Danny, I am planning on attending and hope you will consider joining. More info on the Find Danny Newville Facebook page. A brief note and update before we move forward with today's episode. Remember that above all else, our primary goal here is to help advance the official investigation into the cases we are covering. That means that this is not pure traditional journalism nor is it your average true crime story time or just a biographical memorialization of the missing persons we're covering. Although our show does feature some elements of each of those things, it is not completely or exclusively any one of them. For example, in episode two, I told you a story about a man we're calling Anthony. I also told you that we confirmed his story to have originated in November of 2002. I did not tell you his real name, to whom he made that report, nor how we confirmed that he did so at the time. I did, however, give all of that information to law enforcement. 
We reported what we knew of Anthony's story, even though we had not yet been able to connect with Anthony himself. We did that for three reasons. We were supremely confident in the reliability of the source that we did have. It had the potential to be extremely important to Josh's case. And we knew that getting his story out there could encourage both Anthony and others with similar stories to come forward. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. In addition to hearing from Jeremy, I was able to talk with Anthony this past weekend. He confirmed the essential elements of his story, clarified that all four vehicle occupants were indeed men, reported that after he ran into the woods and hid, they searched for him for a time with flashlights, and he identified the precise location that they took him when they pulled over. Unfortunately, for now at least, I can't give you the precise location details, but I do have an update for you regarding the description of the men, and we'll talk about that in a bit. First, we are going to return to the evidence on Josh's computer, and we're about to talk about extremely private, intimate, and complex stuff that none of us could ever imagine being publicly discussed about ourselves. I do not take this discussion lightly. It's a conversation that requires poise, nuance, and perspective. And regarding perspective specifically, let's be clear about something. Nearly 20 years after his disappearance, Josh Guimond is still missing. In that time, there have been no substantive leads. Again, this is an investigative podcast. Our primary goal is to put some heat on this ice-cold case. And so the reason I am broaching these subjects is precisely because of their potential implications for Josh's disappearance. And even then, I'm only doing so after having already discussed them with both Josh's family and some of his friends. I tell you this for a couple of reasons including a message that I received after episode three. A person who called himself Robert anonymously wrote the following message to me late on Tuesday night. I am saddened that you went so far as to share Joshua's private internet searches. This is a tremendous breach of his dignity and to his memory of family and the community. Imagine Joshua's grade school teachers, neighbors, religious leaders, professors, etc. They could not unhear the information about Joshua's private life that you so aimlessly shared with the world. I don't care how many wonderful things you said about him, you went way too far. Think of how Joshua likely faced some form of terrified trauma that night. Think of him as that young college student, as a victim in his journey in life, and where he was developmentally. If he might somehow hear what you have shared about him now and reflect on what you have done to help his search, I imagine he'd be pretty f***ing angry at you for going there. I live in central Minnesota. It is a small place. While I did not know Josh, I know someone who knew him. As soon as I learned of this podcast, I sent a link to this person via text. While I can only assume that they would be aware of this by now had I not shared the link, I feel a little gross for knowing I shared the podcast with them. You went from two pretty wonderful episodes to a, I'm not giving that asshole any more clicks, listens. What a dick move. Joshua's private life and dignity matter. That was a scummy, used lawyer-like move. You lost total credibility. Look. Sexuality is a fundamental part of human existence. It's an integral part of all of us. But by no means should it singularly define us. And nor is it inherently bad. Let's be real here. We're adults. We should be fully capable of maintaining our respect, admiration, and care for Josh, regardless of whether we also know that he, gasp, talked sexually in some online chat rooms. But here's what's especially troubling about that mindset and the other reason I shared this message. In the initial months and years following Josh's disappearance, 
Various people tried raising the question of whether Josh was secretly exploring his sexuality, and unfortunately, some of Josh's friends reacted quickly and defensively, as though the mere suggestion was somehow slanderous to Josh and those close to him. That response shut down all discussion on the topic, and as it turns out, may have killed what is potentially one of the best leads in this case. I will not let that happen again. So if you're unable to hear a thoughtful and educated discussion about these matters without somehow seeing Josh as less dignified, then please stop this podcast now. Here are the facts. In the month of October 2002, Josh appears to have been, on at least some level, exploring his sexuality. Throughout the month, he spent many hours on all types of porn sites, in sex chat rooms and in webcam rooms. Mostly, though, Josh focused on Yahoo chat and webcam rooms. In doing so, he used a total of three Yahoo profiles, and of those, he predominantly used one in which he presented as if he was a woman. Josh talked with both men and women, but it seems that he mostly talked with men of all sexual orientations, straight, gay, and bisexual. In some cases, he also talked to people in rooms geared towards lesbians and bisexual women, although it appears he may have also talked to men in those rooms as well. We know that Josh viewed dozens, if not hundreds, of profiles, exchanged photos with many people, and watched numerous webcams. It appears that towards the end of the month, Josh became particularly interested in chatting and camming with heterosexual couples. Although Josh had web camera software on his computer, it is unclear if he himself ever went on camera. While Josh had previously looked at porn, just like most 20-year-old college guys, the nature and intensity of his October 2002 activity appears to have been a significant departure from his prior online behavior especially in light of three other things that we also know. This requires further scrutiny. First, there's the complaint that Josh filed with Yahoo on October 28, 2002, in which he reported another user for violating its terms of service. Recall that he submitted that complaint almost immediately after having a 27-minute phone call and immediately before deleting and wiping the entire Yahoo chat program from his computer. Second, there are the other events that were occurring in Josh's immediate backdrop, such as various attacks on college men in the vicinity, at least one of which was also sexual in nature, and the ongoing monk sex abuse scandal, which has previously received a lot of attention in this case on the theory that it might somehow be connected to Josh's disappearance. Third, there's the fact that Josh suddenly and inexplicably left the gathering at Nate's dorm not long after arriving. Recall that at least one person thought that it seemed like Josh had somewhere to be. When people hide something such as the exploration of their sexuality, it substantially increases the likelihood that they'll engage in risky behavior. And collectively, these facts are consistent with the possibility that Josh may have secretly arranged a meetup for the evening of his disappearance. We don't know that for sure, but the facts are highly consistent with that possibility and so we have to explore it. I asked Lisa and Bart what they thought of this information, whether it surprised them, and whether they had any further information that might be helpful on the subject. I don't know that it surprises me. I mean, not that I expected it either, you know. Ever since the boy was growing up, he had a thing for Katie. 
So that's all we ever heard about was Katie, 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 Katie. So I never thought anything of it, I guess. Um, and then when he got older, of course, and he got, finally got with her and, you know, and they're together in college. The only thing I questioned was, is this a good idea anymore? Because you don't, neither one of you know what you're going to do with your life, you know. Don't make it, I'm going to go to four years of college, oh gee whiz, let's get married. No. So one of the things that I learned from Josh's grandparents, Jean and Marge, is that when they went up for family weekend, I guess about three weeks or so prior to Josh's disappearance, um, before that, Josh had called them in advance and had told them about the breakup with Katie and that I guess he also told them that others, such as yourself at the time, uh, didn't yet know that they had broken up. And he asked them to please not say anything to anyone. Did you ever get an explanation from Katie or anyone else as to why Josh wasn't telling you? No. And, you know, I don't know that um, I ever thought to ask Katie that particular question. I don't think anybody has said why they broke up that I know of. No, I have no idea why they broke up. Yeah, so one of the things, at least uh, for me growing up, and you know, Josh and other friends uh, close to me were aware of this is, um, and I don't know if uh, to to what you were mentioning, I don't know if this is what Josh made Josh comfortable to try, uh, but I was uh, made fun of called gay boy uh, through um, probably you know junior high up into, um, you know, 10th, 11th grade. But um, Josh did attempt to kiss me one time when we were hanging out. And, you know, I told him, sorry, that's not, you know, what I'm into or anything along those lines and um, let him know, you know, I was like, hey, no, you know, uh, I'm not upset at you. I don't, you know, you didn't make me uncomfortable like you are who you are type of thing. It was, I was, you know, I guess I'd say relieved in a sense that he felt comfortable enough to, you know, as a friend, open up in that sense. And we kind of just let it go from there and kind of moved on. So, but yeah, I never really, throughout the years, I never really told anyone that because I just didn't know. Well, one, back then, you know, it's, uh, uh, wasn't the most accepted thing the way it is nowadays for sure. So, and I didn't know um, family and other friends, what they would know or think or how they would react off of it. But yeah, there's that, there is definitely, I've always wondered if, you know, that, that was there with him. I mean, knowing what I knew of Josh through the, um, you know, experience that we had and going forward and hearing about some of those scandals that they had there, I've, it's always been in the back of my mind, like, wouldn't surprise me if that's what it was, but you know, it's tough. It's tough to just go tell somebody that, you know, that's what you think it is and have them listen to you in that sense. So. Dr. Michael Ross is a medical doctor who also holds a PhD in cross-cultural health psychology and degrees in criminology and sexual health education. Formerly a sexual health education chair at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Ross has studied sexuality and sexual and mental health for more than 30 years in a half dozen countries. He's published more than 500 publications and books, has practiced as a clinical psychologist, 
and is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and the British Psychological Society. I shared the facts of Josh's case with him and asked him for his thoughts on the possibility that Josh may have secretly arranged some sort of hookup or meetup for the evening of November 9th, 2002. Uh, yeah, well, we're, we're talking about 20 years ago. Um, we're talking about a time before Lawrence versus Texas uh, um, in the Supreme Court. Uh, we're talking about, um, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, about small town, um, country, Midwest. Uh, and we're talking about a setting at a major Catholic university where there are additional sensitivities about homosexuality. And so if you have the history that you've mentioned uh, of exploration of, uh, of gay porn sites, um, amongst other um, erotic sites, then it points very clearly to exploration. It doesn't point very clearly to labeling, which is where people get upset, but it's very clear that there's some exploration going on. Even if people do eventually dis decide that they're not uh, gay or bisexual, they are still likely to experiment. It doesn't necessarily mean it's inevitable path. And if you look at the trajectory of <clears throat> what most young men do as they're uh, forming their identities. The first is that they will be looking uh, online and, and looking at erotic material online. Um, and then it usually does get to a point of uh, starting to, um, to go to chat rooms and, and meet people as, as people's sexuality becomes firmed up and, uh, and they decide to move into a, an actively sexual uh, phase. So that, that would be, it would not only be the normal trajectory, it would, I, I would say, be the, the normative way that, that things tend to go. So I, I would say there's a, the time, the place, um, the, the age of, uh, of the young man, of Josh, um, the phase he might have been in, 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 it's certainly all consistent with, uh, with a meeting with, with someone, um, timing, getting in a car, going someplace, uh, someplace where sexual activity could take place. Uh, none of it raises any surprises in, in my mind. This, this would be a, a fairly typical way of, uh, of making a contact that had been established beforehand, um, probably on the internet. I think when we're thinking about this in the very early 2000s, um, we have to realize that this is a time when the internet was suddenly becoming uh, a force in terms of being um, a social medium uh, and of being used uh, by um, sexual and gender minorities, particularly gay and, and bisexual men, for dating, 
uh, and it actually started its rise around 2000 and there was a very very steep increase if you look at the graphs up to uh, about 2003-2005 you can actually see this this precipitous rise and so it was was a new medium but the uh, the downsides of it the dangers um, were probably not well understood there are many reports of attempted blackmail um, there were lots of people posing or being things that that uh, were not particularly accurate when compared with real life. Uh, so it was a dangerous time. Uh, people were still beginning to realize uh, that everything that looked good on the internet wasn't. Um, and it was all. It would also be a, a great boon for somebody in a very isolated situation. So then you're talking about a, a young man who um, is in what we call the candy store phase, where suddenly um, they realize that there's a big wide world out there and quite a lot of other uh, gay and bisexual people. And um, it does look a bit like uh, being let loose in the candy store. Um, and then to balance that, um, in most gay subcultures, uh, people learn by being, by being taught by their peers about what is dangerous, where not to go, what situations can happen, um, what's dangerous. Uh, that usually occurs in the first one or two years. Um, but if there's no gay peer group there, then none of this knowledge can can happen. Uh, so we're dealing with the uh, the lack of peer acculturation, support, uh, warning systems, um, people to uh, share experiences. What do you make of the fact that he was primarily presenting as a woman? in these chat rooms and webcam rooms? Nothing particularly, except that it's, uh, you know, if you want to meet men and talk about sex, and most of the men uh, on the internet are heterosexual, then, you know, it's not, it's not unknown for people to pose as other people, uh, as different ages, um, as uh, different characteristics, obviously. Um, younger, older, more attractive, um, males, females, you know, the, the internet is the, is the great deceiver. And uh, I think deception of some level, level or another is, uh, is I think well accepted. So I, I, I'm hesitant to make too much of that at this point. What are some things that we should be looking for to try to get a, a better sense for, you know, if it, if it was a, a meetup scenario or hookup scenario of some sort that went bad for some reason? I would think we'd be looking at other, other, other situations where there were young um, gay or gay questioning men um, at the same university at the same time and what the usual um, mode of operation was. 
um, because we're talking about a college campus uh, and people are not usually able to take people to their rooms unless there are other students. So any meeting is going to have to involve meeting somebody and going somewhere else. And so I would ask other people there at the same time and place where they will, would li be likely to be taken or to go uh, if this was, it was in fact the usual scenario, which I, I would expect it was, it was not isolated. Um, and try and build up a scenario from the, uh, the recollections of people who weren't involved in uh, um, being attacked or uh, um, put in difficult situations. Where would, the, where would they go? What would, where would the scenario um, play out? There's also the question as to whether it was premeditated or whether it was, a, um, whether it was not. Um, if it was premeditated, then you can think of endless possibilities. If it was not, then it, it probably narrows it down. So we have a solid framework for the possibility that Josh may have secretly met up with someone on November 9th, 2002, and something may have went wrong, whether that was intentional or not. But as you know, that's not the only possibility that we've explored in this case, nor that we will continue to explore. So far, we've briefly discussed the possibility that he made it back to his dorm room that night, and the extremely frightening prospect that he was attacked by other men. You've heard the stories of Kyle and Anthony, who each described being targeted by four men. And Anthony told me that although he was very drunk, he believes that the men were likely in their younger 20s. He really couldn't remember anything more than that. He cannot recall anything specific about the vehicle, at least today. And so for now, we'll have to defer to the report that he made at the time, which was that it was likely a double cab pickup truck. As our investigation uncovers more and more incidents of college men being targeted by other men in the same area and in the same general time frame as Josh's disappearance, it's beginning to appear that we may be dealing with at least two different groups of aggressors. One or some may have been opportunistic, such as petty thieves, and others may have been far more sinister. On the day I released episode three, I received a call from a man I'm referring to as Jeremy. As I sat alone in my office after a long day at work, Jeremy proceeded to tell me a story that by the end, had me shaking. Last weekend, we drove together to St. Joseph, Minnesota, where Jeremy and I further discussed his story. Anyway, that was the party. Afterward, I cut through this neighborhood. I'll show you where. And I would have wandered through here, not try. I mean, intentionally avoiding the streets because everyone was on edge that Josh had disappeared. And it was, this was the first weekend we had gone out following Josh's disappearance. We, you know, me and the group of folks that I was generally hanging out with. So we came up, I came up to this park and there's the frontage road you can see behind that St. Joseph baseball scoreboard. Yep. 
So I, I remember the night I popped up right out of this, right up from this hill, from the baseball field. And this is, this is where I was walking, right on the right side of the road. So you've got fences all the way down both sides here and no direct view into anyone's home other than maybe the back of this one, I guess. Do you want to get out or yeah, is that weird? Yeah, sure. Yep, let's do it. Hang on a second. Yeah, down here, like down in this, down this hill, this is where I cut through. Coming from the after bar. Coming from the party. Yeah, I mean, imagine like you're the only person at night and you're walking down this. And when that car made that turn, I mean, I could hear it the whole time and it took so long to pass me by the time that thing passed me my heart rate was already blasting I mean I it was this is freaky so let's walk over here um, where the car was again they get out of the car and they leave the car in the middle of the driving lane yeah it might have been a little to the side but it wasn't I mean, it was parked as if it was a real fast stop. And they weren't pulling to the side. And did they, what was the, so they leave the doors open, right? Yep. And they both get out and they both start, start walking at you immediately? Yeah, I was, I mean, I was probably 30 yards from them, maybe 40 yards from them when they first stopped. And I kept walking. They hadn't gotten out yet. And I, you know, like I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. This well, I was just creeped out because of Gimo's disappearance. I mean, I was thinking that. And it's unlikely that this is something that's happening. But as I, as I got closer to them and then they got out of their car and started approaching me, it was clear that they were getting out of their car to interact with me on some level. And they're, are they staring at you the whole time they're walking at you? Oh, absolutely. They got out and walked directly at me or toward me and I want to say these guys were I don't know what this audio means but I think their car was right here so we're we're at basically we're just past the fence area but blocking you from being able to go forward any further right their car is here so that's kind of a barrier in and of itself their doors are wide open. And so they get out and, and then they, they start, start walking back towards you and you're over in the fence area still. I'm probably just getting past it. Okay. And I would, I would say that the interaction occurred between the three of us, probably right about where this pole is, but you know, equidistant with this pole, but on this side of the street. And so they say they get out they're walking at you. Hey, do you know where the after party is? I said, oh yeah, you, you mean the after bar? And as so they're it's right over that, here and I'm slowly backing up, kind of like, yeah, right over here. And I start pointing. They weren't looking where I was pointing and they weren't slowing down. They kept coming closer and closer. And so I started backing up a little faster and it was like, you could see in their eyes, you could see in their body language. They had no interest in the after bar and they had no interest in, in taking any direction. So I, I turned and started to run. One of the guys said, you, you don't need to run. And that, that's where I was saying the hell with this. Like, I'm gonna run as fast as I can. So I ran through the fences 
made a hard turn on that on Birch, Birch Street, hard right, and ran along the front side of those houses. Um, Did you ever look back when you ran? I don't think so. I mean, I for sure didn't see him between this, between the tree that I was hugging and the door of this apartment building. I didn't see the guys. How confident are you that they were trying to grab you or do something to you? I'm absolutely certain. There isn't any question. And they weren't hoping to shake hands. And they, they were an imposing, they were imposing, they were big, and it was 2 a.m. and there isn't any reason they would both get out of the car to come and approach me. And they, they weren't recognizable faces. Um, I didn't have a game plan. I had nowhere to go. It was, call it 2 a.m., everyone's asleep. And they were between stucco and where I was hiding. And I was either gonna run back toward the campus, the, the St. Ben's campus, uh, or hide. And I was breathing heavily, terrified. And I could see these guys all, like maybe four or five guys come out of this apartment building, out of the front door, and they all lit up cigarettes. And that was it. That was the only option I had. I mean, there wasn't a soul in this, in this town that was awake around here. And so I bolted right through. I could walk. I wonder if these guys would wonder what we're doing. The, um, I came bolting down this hill. And at this point, uh, my legs could hardly keep up with my, or I could hardly keep up with the speed. I was coming down this little hill. And I get to here and I can see the car was still sitting right there at the top of the street with the dome light on and the doors open. So they're for sure behind me somewhere. I couldn't see the guys up there. I flew right up to this door. I was in tears and huffing and puffing and did my best to explain to the guys why I was freaked out. And, and I said, there are these guys up here, they're chasing me, they're trying to get me. I need your help. And they put out their cigarettes and said, let's get the hell inside. And I spent the night on their couch. And at that point, I would have, I mean, I would have hidden in a culvert. So it was a, it was a nice, I mean, that was the only option I had. So what did the car look like? I had, it had, um, I don't know what they're called, like luggage rack, like a, like the pinstripe luggage rack that sort of like runs like parallel to the car's direction that raise yeah. up out of the trunk of the roof yeah, yeah or i mean the roof of the trunk sorry something that you'd put i mean I, I don't know that people use it for it but something that you'd put luggage on without scratching the paint of the trunk that's exactly what it was for right and uh, i mean i don't know that i'd ever seen anyone use those but it was an older car probably an 89 88 to maybe 90 91 or two um and it i mean it, it was like Anything distinctive about the car other than the luggage rack, like the doors or anything? It was a darker colored car. I, I drove a car, a two-door car in high school. I know that the two-door cars of that kind of age had longer doors. That was one of the ways they made it easier for you to get into the back seat. And these doors looked like, I mean, they were long. It looked like a two, it was a two-door car, long doors. It, you could see kind of the span of the doors when they opened in front of me. And I could, other than the car being dark, I couldn't tell you what color it was. Uh, I'd tell you that when the interior light came on, it was a red interior. Is that your 
is that your memory imposing that on 20 years or are you confident that it was right? Oh, I'm positive. I mean, that's what I was telling. I, that's, that was one of the few details I was absolutely certain of. So you told people this story after this, right? Absolutely. You, first you told these guys that were in this apartment building over here, right? Yep. How many guys were in here? I, you know, probably five or six. And was they it were, like a multi-bedroom apartment or was it one guy's apartment people were just hanging out at? Do you remember? You know, I think two or three of them might have lived there. But they had for sure had a couple of friends over and they may have just been friends from somewhere else in the apartment complex. But I, I mean, I, I came in there gassed, huffing and puffing in tears. It didn't take more than five seconds to convince them that I needed help. And they had put their cigarettes out. We went inside. One of the guys offered me a beer. And I, I mean, I was like, oh, so shaken. I don't know that I, I mean, I, I went to sleep on their couch almost immediately. And they shut the party down. It was such a dramatic or traumatic event. Um, and in the morning, I remember waking up. One of the guys made something to eat. I don't think I would, I think the guy was like, you want to ride home? And um, I said, absolutely. So he hopped in his car and he drove me back to the campus. And I, um, second I walked into my dorm, my roommate looked at me and said, where the hell were you last night? And I lost it, broke down in tears. And I mean, it was it's still, it's still scary to think of what could have happened, what did happen. And the fact that had I tripped or slipped or fell or had those guys not opened the door to that apartment, there's a really good shot that uh, no one would have seen me again. So you, this was traumatic to the point that you, you know, ran crying to strangers. You started bawling the next morning telling your neighbors about it or your, your roommates and such. You told a lot of people about it in that immediate aftermath. Do you know if, did anyone else ever tell you any stories? Did you hear about any other stories of anything similar happening? I don't know that I did. And I, nothing to this extent, absolutely not. Um, I mean, I lost sleep over it. I would wake up in sweats and, or sweating, just panicking. Um, it stuck with me for a long time and obviously I mean, it's still hard to think about. It's still frightening. Um, Did anyone ever raise the possibility that it may have been connected to Josh Gimon's disappearance? I mean, I, I made that connection. And it, this was only a couple of, two, three weeks after he had disappeared. It was the first time I had gone out after his disappearance and gone out to the bar, or gone out to a party. Um, and candidly, I felt guilty about it a little bit. Like maybe we were pushing it, maybe it was, was uh, insensitive. So people are gonna ask, why didn't you report it then? You know, it was one, because I had been drinking. Two, I was out late. Um, and so my, my recollection of the facts were foggy. I mean, they're no different than they are today. But I couldn't have given you a I couldn't have helped anyone draw a picture of the guys. I couldn't tell you what color the car was. I could tell you that it had those luggage rack trim pieces on the trunk and that they were bigger than me and older than me and for sure weren't students and for sure weren't um, 
interested in attending the party. You talked about about feeling guilty about being out to begin with. What yeah. did you mean by that? You know, we had spent probably two weeks on campus in huge groups of students, walking through the woods, walking through the fields, looking for any sign of any evidence or anything that would help lead us to um, help recover Josh, find out what had happened to him. And, and so part of that guilt was based or premised on the fact that I should have known better to begin with. I probably shouldn't have been outside. I shouldn't have been alone. I shouldn't have been out drinking. Um, and I felt like on some level uh, it was so insensitive that maybe I had deserved that kind of interaction or that experience. I mean, that sounds twisted and absurd, but um, that was it. I also didn't want the attention, and I was scared shitless. So we're obviously using a fake name for you. Um, why come forward today? Um, I think I received enough. Uh, I, I received enough um, uh, uh, enough encouragement to come forward after a year podcast that started from roommates and friends that I had shared this story with at the time. Um, and I kicked it around in, you know, by myself and thought about the pros and cons and, you know, it was like maybe easier to come to you than it would have been to go to the sheriff at the time. And having had the opportunity to think about it for so long and have it weigh on me for so long, it felt like the right thing to do. You, prior to calling me, you hadn't, and still today, haven't listened to the podcast, right? That's right. And so this recollection, you know, and I know, I, thank you, by the way, I know this is hard, but this recollection is, hasn't been influenced by any other stories or anything, right? No, no, absolutely not. The friend in the stucco house, did you ever tell him what happened? You know, I did. I don't know that I shared with him the level of detail or the, like, the intensity of the situation with him, but for sure. And you told... Sounds like something like eight, nine, ten people at the time. Yeah. We lived in, um, we lived on campus and we had a block of rooms, uh, my roommate and I and a handful of buddies that we had lived with for the previous two years. So they were all the closest friends I had. Uh, and I for sure shared it with all of them. And you know, in hindsight, like, I can't, I can't offer a good explanation for why I didn't call the police from that apartment. I, I just don't know. I've got to imagine at some point, one of the guys would have said, should we call the police? And I don't, I don't remember saying no. I don't I think my adrenaline was just so crazy high that um, I, don't, I don't know that I was thinking about it. You went to an you know, all-male private men's college, or I mean, private uh, religious college, right? Yeah. The, it was 2002. I mean, we're in a rural part of the state. Do you feel like that factored into, you know, why you didn't call the police or why you... You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that it did. I, I, I look at it now and think, in hindsight, it was that I was young and could have made a better decision, right? I mean, I, who knows? 
I don't know that I had any fear of the police officers or the sheriffs or the maybe some disconnect just generally generally speaking because I was I guess I don't mean so much less fear. experienced. I guess I don't mean so much fear. I mean more if we if we were to take your story and change the only thing we were to change in it is to make you a woman college like a Saint Benny a Benny yeah. at that exact same age. Can you imagine? Oh my god. I mean, that's, I think it's frightening to think about as myself. Like, you put anyone else in those shoes, and it's terrifying. This is a really, albeit we can see the road, the highway, you know, very nearby, this little almost cul-de-sac, this little sort of circular neighborhood. It's extremely residential. It's not like there's any, oh, you know, yeah. businesses or anything else like that. It's just... I mean, it's a frontage road. That's all it is. It's a frontage road with a bunch of homes on it. And just looking here, like, those guys, had I, had I gotten too close to them or had I let them get too close to me, I would have been on that freeway in their car within 10 seconds. Were you able to see both of all four of their hands? Um, I don't know. I don't know that I can. I mean, these guys were. I'm sure I saw them. I don't remember their ever. They, I don't know that they ever showed me a gun or a knife or any weapon of any kind. How close did they get to you prior to you running? Um. I'd say three, three and a half, four feet. I mean, it was, as you and I are standing here today, probably about this close, if not just a little closer. I and mean, as they got close, I started backing up and they kept coming forward. And so I kept backing up. Um, it happened pretty quickly. I wasn't, I was already on edge, as I said, because Gimo had disappeared. <laughs> And the, the interaction, as these guys drove past me, um, I, I don't think they were going more than three or four miles an hour faster than I was walking. So I heard them coming for a long time before they got, before they passed me. And by the time they passed me, I mean, I knew I was in trouble. I knew this was something that, this was an unusual interaction already. They hadn't set foot out of the car, they hadn't stopped the car, and I already felt like I was a target. You were already on edge even before you got here. You had been drinking. Oh, yeah. Do you think there's any way that you, that in your maybe drunken state and hyper, you know, emotions and all that adrenaline, like, do you think that there's any way you misconstrued it and that they were just asking for directions or something? No, it's, it's possible. It's not plausible. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't buy that for a second. There's any chance in hell I would approach any stranger the way they approached me. In the middle of the night? No chance. If I needed directions, I would have gone to the gas station. I wouldn't stop a 20-year-old drunk guy on the side of the street in a college town. Or even just yelled out the window and asked. Yeah. I wouldn't have gotten out of the car. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. Why do you suppose they left the car running with the doors open? I, 
I'm certain that they wanted to grab me. I mean, there isn't any plausible explanation for this, for this experience or interaction other than that. Had you not been, had Josh Gimon not disappeared a few weeks before, and had you not been on edge already, do you think that interaction may have gone differently? It absolutely could have. Uh, but I think I still would have been highly suspicious of this interaction. I thought, you wouldn't do that to a kid on the street in the daylight without scaring the hell out of the kid, college age or not. You wouldn't do that to anybody. I mean, that, the interaction while they were in their car was still terribly imposing and frightening. There isn't any chance that they had any other intention. I mean, there is a chance. It's highly improbable. So they must have been, you must have been about 30 feet back from their car by the time they get to you. Yeah, I'd say about that. What were they gonna do? I mean, like that's what Jesus. I don't get. Is like, they do they knock you out with something? Do they? What do they do? That's. I mean, that's the shit that I woke up and sweats over. I don't know. But they weren't looking for a friend, you know. Yeah. There, there was nothing about it that was appropriate. I mean, it absolutely felt like I was a victim in the make you know they were they saw they saw me and had every intention of getting a hold of me what the hell they were going to do with me i couldn't tell you jeremy thinks the two men were approximately 40 years old weighed more than 200 pounds and may have been taller than five feet 10 inches they had short and gruff facial hair and were driving a late 80s or early 90s dark-colored car with a red interior and a built-in luggage rack on the roof of the trunk. The car had longer doors and was likely a two-door car. Some potential makes and models include Oldsmobile Cutlass, Mercury Cougar, Pontiac Grand Am, Buick LeSabre, Chevy Cavalier, and Chevy Beretta. Please continue to share this podcast and talk about Josh's case. Together, we are, in fact, making progress. Please also share any information that might be helpful. You can provide anonymous tips via our website or voicemail. Our website is simplyvanished.com, where you can also find more information about the case and donate to the GoFundMe page that's being organized by Josh's dad. As of right now, my tentative plan is to release eight numbered episodes for this season. I'll outline the approximate schedule on the message board at simplyvanished.com. Please note that between episodes five and six, on August 15th, 2022, I will host a question and answer bonus episode, in which I'll address various questions from listeners. For today, I am going to give the last word to Josh's mom, Lisa. Thank you to the people that are calling in um, with the tips and the people that are listening and spreading the word. I mean, to me, this is awesome, you know? Yeah, I think this is great. There's not a lot of people that would do it, you know? And 
the people that um, Josh's friends, his you know his the, the people that he went to school with um, from college, the ones that that have more insight than everybody, if they could just please open up, talk. This isn't a inquisition. It's something that that you're you're trying that will help hopefully lead the way to help solving what happened. What maybe did we miss? What insight don't we have? That's the kind of information that people need to realize that you're looking for. You know, and sometimes I don't think they think that. They worry more about themselves. And it's like, it's not about you, you know, so. So I wish those, I wish the people that are having a hard time dealing with the, with trying, or with talking, I wish they would just, you know, I'm sorry, get over it, move on, step up, grow up, you know, help. That's all we need is help. I've been searching in the dark, trusting every clue I've Truth has not been told. Is every corner of these woods is hollow? I can't see in the dark. Where are you? Where are you? The rivers told me lies. Where?
the river. 